consider all the works thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the displayed then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art Good morning, everyone. Would you please stand as we have our responsive reading. We will finish up Psalm 44 this morning. Um, uh, Page 576, I believe it is, in the Pew Bible. Psalm 44, we'll pick up this morning with verse 14 and and finish it up. I will begin at verse 14. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not diverted from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God, or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find us out, for he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we have... Wait a minute, you're stealing my part? Goodness gracious. I know what it is. It's this time I'm reading the even number verses. It throws you all off. Okay, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. But for your sake, we are killed all, all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. 
Amen. Please be seated. Do you want to do this part too? Um, just to conclude this particular psalm, you can see where the, uh, the writer of the psalm is talking about how basically God's face had turned away from them, that they have been dishonored and that they have been found humiliated in front of, I guess, the other uh, nations, what have you, because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, the presence of our enemy and our avenger. Has God forgotten them? I could see how they... In their pride, they're kind of saying in verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. But I think it's just exactly what they did do. When they turned towards idolatry or or stepping away from their relationship with God, that is what they were doing in... um, uh, uh, Doing false, dealing falsely with the covenant, and and that they did forget their God. I mean, if you're going to go out in the field and raise up a Asherah pole or worship Balaam or Moloch or any of the other numerous different gods in the area, you must have forgotten your God. How quickly they were inclined to turn turn away from them, and in that God's judgment is coming upon them. He is making them a reproach before the people, trying to get them straightened out. And you see that with so many times where God uh, brings a judgment upon his people. As a parent would uh, um, uh, punish a child for doing something wrong in hopes that they would learn, hey, I don't want to be punished anymore. I'll do the right thing. It's similar to the way God dealt with uh, his nation Israel through this Old Testament. They still stepped away from him. They still turned their back, but he would chastise them and bring them back into a fellowship. And here they're calling out for that fellowship to to come back to them. Uh, Why do you hide your face and forget the afflictions and our oppressions? Um, And in that, verse 24, for our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. A, a, a way of saying we have died in this relationship. Can we be restored? Will you bring us back into favor? And in verse 26, rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. That's the most true part about this particular psalm. Because it's they're not sitting there saying, Hey, we've come to our senses. We want to follow you, God, and we will always be true to you. Therefore, redeem us. They're calling out to a loving God, knowing that he would keep to his promises, that he is a faithful God. And the reason that they're calling out is for your loving kindness. And that's the one great thing that we can see in the God that we worship. His consistent faithfulness and his loving kindness for his people. You look around and you see other religions and different people who worship different things and the punishments that come, but there never seems to be that loving kindness that restores them. There's the the chastisement, there's the punishment, there's the, the distance, but never the open arms and the bringing in and the gathering the way that the God of our Bible does towards his people. So just to conclude, Psalm 44. Thank you.
I'd like to direct your attention to the front of the bulletin this morning. I want to continue with the theme that Pastor Steve was just putting before us. Here on the front of the bulletin, a couple poignant things that stand out to me. Um, The first is that there's a text. Well, first thing, let's face it, there's food. So that was the first reason why I I liked this bulletin choice this morning, was clearly I came here hungry. And uh, so besides that... Um, we see this Revelation verse here. And again, we, we're a church that talks a lot about Revelation. You know, we obviously, we come to understand a particular detail, if you will, uh, the whole force of the text, um, that God has indeed fulfilled the things that we read about in Revelation. But this verse right here, verses 5 through 6 in the first chapter, to me, highlights the beauty of what Pastor Steve had just put before us, and also highlights the beauty of the entire Bible, if not also the book of revelation it says to the one who loves us and freed us to him be glory and power forever and always so prayerfully we're in agreement that's why we're here this morning is to lift up praises to a god that as pastor steve had said has continually shown his consistency his faithfulness his mercy his love and ultimately freedom those who know the lord are free indeed amen this morning what i'd like to talk to us about is Christ's blood work. That's what I've entitled the, uh, the message this morning, is Christ's blood work. And uh, what I want to do is kind of have us put on our New Covenant eyes glasses here and, and look at and consider, we're not going to really look at the text, consider the things that we've been talking about, Leviticus chapters 16 and 17, and maybe press in and understand some of the details a little bit more uh, a little bit more, and, and to make them clear. So, we've continued to think through the scriptures, and where we find ourselves is at Leviticus chapter 16 through 17. And what I've been doing for the last couple weeks is talking a little bit about atonement, well, a lot of it, since we've been talking about it for two weeks, um, about atonement and blood offerings and sacrifices that, of course, are commanded to be lifted up in Leviticus chapters 16 and 17. What I've marked out so far in talking about in the last two sermons, if I could sum them up, I would say that I've marked out that Christ was he who brought atonement to those that needed atonement and also propitiation, meaning the throwing off the need for atonement for the people of God today. We are the people that have been propitiated, meaning we have been completely freed from the need to have atonement, to have a covering that is given to us year after year. We have Christ. We have the blood of Christ. We are covered in the blood of Christ. And that's going to be a a point that I'm going to keep saying this morning. And uh, it's not our atonement, but again, it throws away the need. The blood of Jesus gets rid of the need for a continued atonement, right? It says that Christ, in the book of Hebrews, we're actually going to look at this verse here in a little bit. It says that Christ, not being like that high priest that has to enter in and do it year after year, but Christ did it once and for all. And again, took away the need for a continued atonement to be done and again. Last week, what I had focused on was I had a message entitled, There's Power in the Blood. And we focused in on specifically Leviticus chapter 17, where it tells us that the life is found in the blood of a being. We see it talking about animals. We see it talking about humans. Um, The life is found in the blood. As I thought about the message last week when I left, I said, I could have preached that entire message in one sentence. And what I would have said to you was, the power that is in the blood is the power that helps us focus 
on God. Again, we see all throughout the Old Covenant, the blood of bulls and goats did not help the people of God focus on God. What it did was it helped them to develop systems that unfortunately led them further away from God. So what we see through Jesus Christ is that's why it's the blood of Jesus that sets our eyes on Christ. It's his sacrifice for our benefit that allows us to truly focus in on God. Not that we would think that we're a group of holy people, but we would understand that it's the, sh- the blood that has been shed by Christ that has allowed us, that has worked efficiently in our lives to bring us to this point where we can gather as an assembly and lift up praises to God. Again, nothing in and of ourself. That is, a, that is what comes from the power of the, shed, the blood that was shed by Christ. And the second point would be, it focuses us and then it cleanses us. And I'm going to show you some scriptures that say that. So the blood of Christ, the power that is in the blood, is that it focuses us in on that which has provided atonement and propitiation. And then it also does the efficient work of cleansing us from sin, the, the need for atonement and propitiation, right? The need to remove the sin that is found within us corporately as well as individually. I believe this is important. I believe, again, you might say, why are we talking about the blood for a third week in a row? Can we just move on to the, the morality aspects of the rest of the chapters of the book of Leviticus? Because that's what's going to happen, by the way. We're going to move into Leviticus chapter 18. I've been talking a lot about ceremonies and Jewish you know, principles from the first couple chapters of the book of Leviticus. We move into the fun stuff next week where we pick up at Leviticus chapter 18 and we talk about a lot of the moral aspects. So we're going to be digging in. So... I'm going to promise you next week we want to hear that. But the reason why I'm focusing in on the blood this morning is I believe as a priesthood of believers, right? For the priest in the old covenant, having knowledge of what animals were acceptable for sacrifice and all of that, that was very important. Thank God we don't need to be those people that have to be obsessed with that. What animal we have to sacrifice and all of that. But there should be something that we focus on in as the, as the priesthood of believers. And what I believe that is, is the proper way that we speak about the blood of Jesus Christ. I did a little bit of research yesterday and I looked on the internet and man, the church is confused about the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet we say we're covered in it. We say it's the substance of everything. Matter of fact, the scriptures, again, I'm going to show you here in a moment. The scriptures point out that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that is the substance of everything that we are. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that has bought us. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that establishes the church. Yet, if you were to go online and just put in blood of Jesus Christ on Google you'd find a whole host of confusion coming from the Christian community. The priests were those that were responsible for administering administering the details of atonement and thus blessing the people. Therefore, those of us who are in Christ are responsible for explaining the biblical narrative and the details of the propitiation that has been provided by Jesus Christ. That's our job in this world. Our job in this world is to help people better understand why it is that we don't need to offer sacrifices or why we don't adhere to these host of false religions that are found out there, but instead we can be a people that have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, again, we have something, we're very opposite. We need to be able to explain that story with clarity. We need to be careful when we begin to talk about the blood of Jesus Christ because, again, that is our foundation. It's the blood that has set us free. Unfortunately, if we do not properly understand the way that these details apply we will end up with some rather strange interpretations that hardly provide hope, um, nor hope to the people that hear us. You see, they don't provide us hope, and they don't provide hope to the people that hear us. And that 
is contrary to everything that we the church stand for. We are to be the people, the children of the day that are bringing forth clarity in this world, that are helping the people that are stuck in darkness see the light. So we're not at liberty to be so confused about our hope that we're unfortunately confusing the world around us as the church. For example, to gain some perspective, I inquired about where and how the physical blood of Jesus Christ can be found. Because again, if some are positing that it's the physical blood of Jesus Christ that saves us. And if that's the case, obviously the question would be, well, where can I find the physical blood of Jesus Christ? The physical, biological blood that has, you know, came from Christ on the cross. Where can I find that? How can I gain access to that? How can I take a bath in it if that's what saves us? If it's that actual physical blood. And uh, this is what one man shared with me. As we become new creatures in Christ, our liver, through the Holy Spirit, begins to produce blood cells that are more and more like Christ's. His blood starts to course through our veins, enabling us to think and feel more like he does every day. Did you catch that? So this person is saying that the way that we access the literal blood of Jesus Christ is, well, yeah, surely a blood transfusion through the Holy Spirit where your blood begins to be more like Jesus' physical blood. And prayerfully, that's confusing you and you're saying, that sounds rather strange. That was my comment when I read it at the the game last night. And uh, prayerfully, I'm not alone in thinking that's a ludicrous notion. If we start out this morning knowing that God blesses people to bless people, I believe that. I believe God has blessed me, God has blessed us, so that we might bless the world. His work and his riches are given to provide extended, abundant blessings through those whom he has blessed, namely spiritual blessings. So we must offer better substance and theories than that. I hope that man has no access to anybody outside the church to tell them that's how they're accessing the blood of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like to do is start by looking at some verses. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to say the verse to you because it's a verse that most of us know. It's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's table, that Jesus Christ, when he was sitting there before his disciples on that last night when he was betrayed, he said, this is my blood, which is given for you. This is what establishes the new covenant. The new covenant is established in my blood. I paraphrased it a couple different ways. Perfectly, you know they all come out to mean the same thing. The new covenant has been established through the blood of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, another text, says this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So again, that supports everything I had said earlier, where I said that the whole point, it's important. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. It's our substance. It's our foundation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Giving myself some practice this morning, so I wanted to do some flipping through the pages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption, if I may back up to verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins. And we know that that forgiveness of sins comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Well, again, I'm going to back up here. I'm going to go to verse 11. But when Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 24 of the same chapter. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the last verse I'd like to bring before us this morning for our consideration is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, wherein we read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That is not the verse I was looking for. However, it applies. Hopefully, we would uh, all agree with that verse and say that we need, as we press in to understand the blood of Jesus Christ, which focuses us and cleanses us, that we would, again, I, I don't want to have you not write that verse down, First Peter chapter 1, verse 14, that we would again remember that all of this has been done to take us away from our former ignorance so that we can be holy like our Lord. Again, the blood of Jesus Christ is that which enables us to do that. Nothing in and of ourselves. In more recent discussions, it has been said that those who adhere to covenant eschatology, which I hold to, um, being that I believe that the covenant was fulfilled in its entirety in AD 70, and thus establishing a new covenant for us, it's been said that those that adhere to covenant eschatology and understand Christ's atoning and propitiating work to be that which establishes and gives power to the church the glorified body of Christ, it's been said that we deny the power and sufficiency of the blood of Christ, namely because we explain that salvation was purchased through Christ's sacrifice and is ultimately applied at his second coming. And if I may, if you're still over there in Hebrews chapter 9, I just want to continue through that, what I had just read to you about Christ manifesting to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, verse 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who are eagerly waiting for him. So when I read through Hebrews chapter 9, it becomes very clear to me that Christ's blood is that which he shed. And yes, I'm going to say this now. I believe he literally shed his blood. He died on a cross Real blood, real blood flow, you know, flowed from his heart when he was pierced with the spear. I believe that. I don't believe it was figurative blood. I don't believe it's a fancy story. I believe Jesus died on the cross. 
So now that we already got that out of the way, I believe Jesus ascended into heaven. I don't believe he took the blood that he died on the cross with and took it to heaven. Like that, you know, had a bowl and put the, the literal blood in, a blood, blood in a bowl and ascended into heaven. To me, that again, that sounds like the, the liver being the blood transfusion with the liver. Sounds strange to me. So for me, I would understand that the blood, when it says that he entered into heaven by his blood, I would understand, as the Hebrew people would understand, that the blood is synonymous with life. So what we're saying is he entered into heaven by his life. Not to become obsessed with literal blood, did Jesus take blood with him into heaven? This is arguments that are happening on social media between Christians. Did Jesus bring literal blood with him to heaven? So, again, we have to do better than this, church. We have to do better than this. So, and hopefully this morning I'm going to convince you of that and give you a more palatable understanding of how all of this applies. So, I'd like to personally recommend and thank the studies publicly um, of Dr. Don K. Preston and Church of Christ preacher Steve Baisden because they've really pressed in to try to help others understand this. If anybody's interested, uh, please talk to me after service. I'd love to send you an article written by Steve Baisden particularly in dealing with a lot of these details of what blood is it that we need from Jesus Christ? What is the blood that does the propitiating work, the atoning work of God? Is it his literal blood? I also want to mark out that a failure to understand the scheme of salvation as put forth in the scriptures is what leads to a lot of our divisiveness and debates. It's being said that due to the fact that I read Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 where it says that he came a second time to bring salvation, I would understand that Christ's work on the cross wasn't finished at the cross regardless to what he says it is finished. That phrase telestai, again, would have been a phrase that was you know, stated by every high priest when they would slaughter the sacrifice. So I don't believe that Jesus Christ is saying it's all finished on the cross. It seems to make the rest of the scriptures pointless if it was all finished at the cross. Jesus doesn't say that was it. He ascends, he he resurrects from the dead. And again, if it was finished at the cross, what's the point of the resurrection? So Jesus dies on the cross, says it is finished, resurrects from the dead three days later, stays on earth teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God for 40 days and nights, and then ascends into heaven and promises to come again. So of course it can't be done at the cross. So this has brought me into a debate and discussion with other teachers as to when does the blood of Christ, that which was given for the atonement of Israel and the propitiation of the church, when and how does that blood apply? Obviously you know for me, well, I'm going to take you through it. So, when, did the blood apply when the sacrifice was offered up? When the high priest went and killed the sacrifice, is that when the people were considered saved and atoned for? Negative. Negative, okay. Was it when the high priest entered into the most holy place? So then, therefore, it must be the third one, when the high priest comes out the second time to bless the people. And I'd like to bring your attention to Leviticus chapter 9. We, we talked about this already, but I just want to, again, put before you the text so you can see it with clarity that this is what the Bible teaches, that salvation was revealed at the second coming of Christ. And again, if we're waiting for it, that's something I don't have to answer to. I believe it's been consummated. It's been given to us. Salvation has been provided. 
through the new covenant. Those that are still waiting for it, that's a, something that they may have to kind of figure out in their own study, how they're saying they're saved and yet they're waiting for salvation to be revealed. Here in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, it says, And Aaron, if I may back up, I want to bring us to, uh, yes, I'm sorry, verse 22 is fine. And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So you notice they go in twice. They go in twice, and then the glory of the Lord appears to all people. And again, I believe that to be a correlating text, Leviticus chapter 9, Verses 22 through 23 is what you should write a cross-reference. If you've ever seen that little CF in people's notes, but that is a cross-reference to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. That salvation would be revealed the second time. Another Christian friend on social media had a more theological point to make regarding the blood of Christ. He said, the whole tenure of Scripture is more concerned with what blood means than what blood is. In Leviticus, God says the blood is the life of the person. There was nothing inherently holy about the blood of Christ, except that it represents the life of Christ, which was unequivocally holy. That I can agree with. The whole liver turning your blood into, you know, blood cells just doesn't work. So, what blood was shed? Jesus says he was on the cross, he shed his blood. It was real blood, literal blood. What blood did Christ enter heaven by? You see, and that question is a tricky one. Because again, what we're saying, it's not so much that he entered into heaven by his blood. He entered into heaven by his life. He gave up his life, not his blood. His blood he didn't have to bring blood to heaven to you know, anoint the, the true tabernacle of God with blood as the high priest would under the Old Covenant. Is it the physical, biological blood of Jesus Christ that we must come into contact with to be saved? If that's the case, what of the Jews who beat Jesus Christ? Do we suppose that they didn't get covered by his physical blood when they crushed thorns into his head? Of course they did. So would we say they were saved? What about the Jews that exclaimed in Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, let his blood be upon us and our children. Is that a statement of salvation? If we're saying that it's the physical blood of Jesus Christ that we must come into contact with? Or what about the Roman centurion that pierced Jesus Christ? Are we to suppose that none of the blood and the water that came out from Christ on the cross possibly landed on him? Would anybody mark him out as saved because of that event? No. So what we should be asserting when we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ saving us is that, yes, it historically happened. Real blood shed from Jesus on the cross. But what makes us saved is how that that blood is spiritually discerned and applied. How we've come to understand that his giving up of his life, his giving up of his blood, shedding literal blood for our salvation. How we have come to understand that as spiritually applied to the people of God. So the question becomes, 
how and where is the blood of Jesus Christ applied? And I'd like to turn your attention to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're reading with me in a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 1169. And we're pretty much going to read through this entire chapter. And I believe this chapter is going to mark out our answer. How and where is the blood of Christ applied? Starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the church, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory." In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, there's your spiritually discerned, having also believed, you were sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you at Ephesus, And your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what the hope of his calling is, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe." These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, as I stand in front of you all, I ran this by my brother to make sure it made sense, and he said yes, so I'm glad to, I can can proclaim it to you, that if it's the blood of Christ, if Christ is where salvation is found, and the church is the body of Christ, where is salvation found? In the church. Through us, in the church, what we celebrate, we celebrate salvation, we celebrate his blood as the very foundation of all that we have, so that we can be the people who have been enlightened to know his power, 
that we know it's the hope of his calling and that we know our inheritance, the new covenant, that which God promised through the prophets, that which Peter says, Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the mystery of what the prophets hoped for, inquired for, and desired to know what these things pointed to. We, the people of God, we, the church, are those that are supposed to have that answer. We're the ones that should say, it's here. And again, it's not, we're not, hopefully nobody in this room is planning to introduce anybody to the physical blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know how you would do that, um, unless you maybe go to the Shroud of Turin or a bunch of the other strange notions that have been offered up by the church. Um, again, we need to be clear that these things are spiritually discerned. If I may give you just a couple proof texts, in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, we read about a spiritual kingdom. So if we're offering salvation to people in a spiritual kingdom, the blood must therefore be spiritual blood. It must be spiritual blood. As strange as that might sound, and as many debates as that might bring out, that's what it must be. It's the literal blood, but spiritually applied, spiritually discerned. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, another proof text speaking about the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and Luke 21 verses 20 through 32. So the conclusion this morning is I want us to go forth as priests. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, and they sang a new song. That's the song of the new covenant. And this is their song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Again, talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, because you were slain and your blood and by your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them into a kingdom as priests to serve our God and they will reign upon the earth. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, I thank you for your atoning work. I thank you for your propitiating work, Lord, that you've established the church, that we would not have this need for atonement again and again and again. That we would Understand that your life has been given up for us. That yes, your physical blood was shed. But it's your holy life that we should be looking to, Lord, and, and lamenting the fact that you were slain for us. A perfect Messiah slain in, in, in place of people that are desperately wicked. Lord, as we talk about the life and the blood and we talk about all these details going through the book of Leviticus, I ask that you impress upon us clarity that we would understand that it's not about physical details, Lord, physical bodies and blood, but instead it's about the spiritually discerned things, Lord, the spiritually discerned wisdom that you provide through Jesus Christ, that you have summed up all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That instead of arguing whether we get new bodies or what sort of blood saves, Lord, we would point people to you. We would point people to confess, to know the, to confess you, Lord, to Know the hope of your calling, to know the glorious inheritance that you have provided for those that love you. May that be our focus, Lord, and that what we point people to, not confusing them and leading them in strange directions. Lord, again, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the spirit that illuminates your truth. And thank you for the spirit that edifies each and every one of us. We lift up praise to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.